Blog Talk Radio. Good evening and blessings and welcome to another installment of the Gist for Freedom of Space. This show is produced by acclaimed historian, educator, and author Leslie Gist and serves as our weekly live online discussion to celebrate the African-American experience by honoring all the people, past and present, black and white, who with faith and focus are preserving our rich history through literature, the arts, the skilled trades, and the humanities. We thank you for joining us tonight, and we'd love you to be a part of tonight's discussion by calling in with your comments or questions to 347-324-5552. Good evening, everyone. My name is Preston Washington. I'm your host tonight. You're on the Gist of Freedom, that's G-I-S-T, coming to you via www.blackhistoryblog.com. We're going to continue our discussion of Benjamin Quarles, Black Abolitionist, Chapter 10. Joining us this evening is Professor Herbert Signore. Are you there, Professor? I think I heard you. Yes, good evening. How are you? Oh, I'm fine, uh, Professor. Tell us a little Thanks bit sir. about work Thanks that you're for involved me. I'm sorry? Thanks for inviting me to speak to you then. Okay. So. We will come back later. Um Seems that we're having a connection problem. Hello? No, we're not having a connection problem. I think we all can hear one another. Can you hear I, me, Professor? Yeah, I, I can hear you. Yes. I can't hear the professor. Can you hear him? Yeah, I, I can hear you clearly. Okay, go ahead, Preston. Okay. Well, uh, you're going to talk to us, Professor, about the work that you're involved in in New York City called the Seneca Village? Yes, it's. Seneca Village was an, an African-American and Irish immigrant community in the area that became Central Park. And it is was one of the first significant communities of African-American property owners. In terms of its location, um, if you look at the park, present-day park, it would, be, it would have been existing between 82nd and 89th Street and 7th and 8th Avenue from a period from about 1825 to about 1857. Okay. And how long have you been involved in this project? Tell us about the village. project started with uh, a diner work from the, the City College of New York, Nan Rothschild from Columbia University, and Cynthia Copeland. At the time, Cynthia Copeland was at the New York Historical Society. She's now at NYU. And I was a student of Professor of, of, of Diana Wall, and what happened at the history of Seneca Village was uh, forgotten for over 100 years. But the, around 90, 1992, the book called The Pack and the People was published, and it was offered by Roy Rosenweg and Elizabeth Blackmore. And there's a chapter in the book that gave the history of Seneca Village. 
actually from that um, chapter, there's an exhibit curated by Cynthia Copeland and Grady Turner, and that exhibit was held at the New York Historical Society. And from that, there's a lot of interest that was generated from that exhibit. And then we formed a, a bond with Cynthia Copeland, Nan Rothschild, and Diana Wall to look at the possibility of exploring the history of the community further. Because what happened with the idea of building the park, the powers that be at the time denigrated the inhabitants of Seneca Village, and they will describe it very very negative terms. As we have the history we have uncovered and explored shows something that's much more complex. So we, we saw the need to form an advisory board with people who have similar interests and people who might have been descendants of the inhabitants from, from, from Seneca Village. More looking at people uh, the, in terms of the, the churches that existed in Seneca Village to be part of that advisory board and to guide the research process. Hello? Yes, and um, yeah. it was primarily made up of African Americans. Were there any other ethnicities? Yes. Um, initial settlers were African American. Actually, if you look at the, we believe um, the initial purchase of people who purchased property, and it, the story of Seneca Village actually looks, we begin like uh, in 1824, a white couple. Uh, the name of John and Elizabeth White had purchased farmland in that, in that area. And what they did, they subdivided that land into smaller lots to sell, and they were willing to sell to African-Americans at that time. And the first person purchasing was a young African-American named Andrew Williams, and he purchased three lots in 1825. And he, at that time, he purchased it for $125. Also that day, uh, the AME, the physical Zion Church also purchased six lots near 86 Street, and the purchase was uh, for a cemetery. Also buying uh, property that time was Epiphany Davis, and he was an African-American stockbroker, and he bought 12 lots for just under $600. And we believe that this initial um, transaction laid the foundation for the development of Seneca Village. We think that also uh, something that was, was driving that purchase was around 18, in the 1820s, New, the laws in New York State were changing in that slaves would be emancipated in that, around that period. At the same time that would be happening, the voting laws changed in that it, the requirement for African American males to, to vote increased whereby they had to have property value at $250 and be a resident of New York City for three years. At the same time that they did that, the voting requirements for white males was reduced. We think that the, the one of the factors pushing the purchase of property in that area was for the purchasers to be enfranchised and be part of the political process. Mm. When did this uh, village finally get overtaken uh, by modern times? Well, with 
the, I, as the city was growing exponentially with immigration and um, with the construction of the Erie Canal, New York as a sport grew exponentially, and there was a, a lot of migration to the lower part of Manhattan, where the city center became very intensely populated. Uh, that, at the same period, the powers that be decided that there's a need to build a park and something that would be of grand scale, and that area was looked at as an area where the park could be built. So uh, the initial, and actually that was, just to come back, it, it, that was one of the first instances of the city taking prop property for the use of eminent domain to build a park. Mm, I see. So the use of eminent domain had been used prior, but it was more for, for, for example, with the construction of the cotton aqueduct system, the eminent domain was used, but for the construction of a park that had never been done before. But in the whole midst of getting that process done and taking over property, there's a smear camp, the, the, uh, a negative image was painted of inhabitants. And to some extent, that image continues to, the, to, to, to this day in terms of the popular mythology of people of what might have existed in the park. So part of the idea of what we're working to is to look at the complexity of the lives of people who lived in that area, particularly Central, particularly Seneca Village. Yeah, how did this uh, smear campaign work? You mentioned a smear the, campaign. Yeah, how did um, that? There were several. There were publications that described inhabitants as quarters, as phase. Uh, so that, that that gave an image that everybody living in that area was squatting and did not own property. But looking at historical documents, um, says, uh, tax records, deeds, titles, uh, you see that people bought property or and paid taxes. Also, something that's significant with Seneca Village is the length of time that people lived in, the, in, 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 in one area. For example, if you look at other communities, people, there was a lot of um, movement in terms of residents, so people never stayed, um, residents um, might, if they renters, they kept moving on a regular basis. Whereas if you look at, for example, the census records for the area that is Seneca Village, you see people are there for over 20 years. Also, looking at church records, you can see the interconnections between families in terms of who might have been sponsors at baptismals. So you can see the, the, the network that developed within the community. There were three churches in Seneca Village and also a school for college children. How did you get drawn to this work, Professor? But, Actually, I'm not a professor right now. I'm working with I'm Diana Wall. Um, I do. I, I work with the School of Education, and I'm a student of Diana Wall. But I've been involved in projects from 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 the beginning. Okay. And uh, what do you teach? But I lecture on Central Village and history, but and archaeology. But I do more administrative work at City College.
in addition to in addition to doing uh, our research on archaeology. Okay. And are there any events coming up around uh, Seneca Village that our listeners should know about? Well, actually, uh, we'll be having an advisory board meeting at the end of of March, and we are going to formulate plans to try and have the exhibit. Right now, there is an exhibit at the City College at the Corden Library on the research I've done. We had a field school uh, in 2011 where we got permission to actually have a dig in, in the area that was uh, Seneca Village. Uh, we have artifacts on, some artifacts on display at the Cohen Library. So we're trying to formulate plans to have the exhibit as a traveling exhibit to go to maybe community centers and to get students and um, young people involved in that sort of work and to show them the process of archaeology and how they can learn about um, their own history looking at primary source documents. Okay. And is there a website that our listeners might go to to find out more information? Yes. It's, it's one way. Um, it's www.learn.columbia.edu slash Seneca underscore village. Okay, I missed that first part after the triple W. I got the Learn. Learn. Yes. Dot Columbia. Okay. Dot edu slash Seneca underscore village. Okay. And you mentioned that there was um, Methodist churches uh, in this village, were there, there, were free, were there yeah, other religions? Yeah, there, there, there were three churches. There's the African Union, and uh, the first African Methodist Episcopal Church, and there's also uh, the All Angels Church. And was that was that by design? Uh, that is, uh, other religions were not allowed, or just so happened that most of the inhabitants were of those particular faiths? Some of the black churches actually grew out of established white establishment, but because of issues of race, they formed their own branches. The all angels church was uh, mixed in was mixed in that they were white and black in the all angels church. Uh, towards the latter part of its history, um, towards the 1840s, there were the settlements of Irish immigrants and some Germans within Seneca Village, because at that time you had the Irish famine. And interestingly enough, uh, interestingly at that period. Um, the Irish were denigrated also. So part of the Irish living in that community, that was a, a way of living away from the densely the densely populated area of, of Lower Manhattan and maybe finding refuge in that area. Very interesting indeed. So uh, getting some new information here that uh, Oklahoma uh, the Greenwood community, known as yeah. Black Wall Street, was not the first uh, 
African American uh, community to prosper such as it did. It seems that Hen uh, Seneca would have been the first. And just um and then if you think of also Wicksville, that's just um ten years after Seneca Village. So Wicksville starts about eighteen thirty five. So something we we are we are work to explore further is relationship uh, between Seneca Village and the Wicksville community in the area because Brooklyn. Mm hmm What uh what sort of institutions did they establish there? Uh, in Seneca but, Village, other than the churches. That's, uh, that's uh, so what we are going to explore some more, but to some extent, um, because of the area, there will be some farming, they will be, they'll be doing their own farming. Uh, we are looking at the remains of and uh, trying to analyze it further to, to determine um, what might have been um, Produced locally, for example, looking at the bones of goat and sheep, we can we can determine whether it was something that they have it at home or from a butcher by looking at, it, at its sort of cuts of the meat. Mm -hmm. So that's uh, so it gives you an idea of the dietary practices and animal husbandry and how food might would would be produced within the community. Okay, so there was some husbandry going on. Was there any underground activity, underground railroad activity? That's, any one of the, that, that's one of the questions we're exploring, and as to get anything definite, right now we haven't, we haven't found anything, anything definite. However, it's because um, we know that the initial settlers of the community would have been politically active, and the location of the settlement of the community out of away from the city center so that there'd be less eyes looking at, at the activities taking place. It's possible that it would have been used, but there's not, at, at this point there's nothing definite. But these are something that these are things we'd like to explore. Okay. You mentioned uh, Cynthia Copeland earlier. How did you two meet? Actually, uh, we had an exhibit at City College, and we had done an archaeological project um, on a federal period um, structure looking at a privy. And from that uh, field school, we had an archaeological exhibit at City College, and Cynthia Copan was invited to that, that exhibit because we had explored um, the exhibit they had at the Historical Society on Seneca Village. And also at a time, so simply invited that us to bring that exhibit to the historical society. And she had also, there, there's a period when she had taken some teachers out to the area that was Seneca Village and she came upon some um, portraits uh, from her work with the teachers. And she brought these artifacts up to City College to determine whether they might have dated to the period of Seneca, or, or that Seneca Village existed. So through all this activity, we formed a, a bond and relationship with, with Cynthia. And what would you like the public to do to help preserve the uh, that particular village, and all uh, black villages for that matter? 
There's most people go through Central Park and they have no idea of what existed there prior to the park being built. And because of the way it's designed, it's assumed that everything has been there forever in terms of the trees and the layout, the lakes. And most people don't realize it was a man, it's a man-made structure. And that there were established communities within that area. So what we'd like, we'd like to do is to commemorate the history and presence of the African-American community in that area. Mm-hmm. So, yes, you want uh, individuals to understand that Central Park was more than just trees and grass, et cetera. There were the established communities that, that people lived and, and survived in that area. They lived and survived in that area. So and, contri- and, and also contributed, and anybody who lives in here, they, they contributed to New York's development in some, in, in some way. And to the New York, uh, to the development of New York City. Yes. Now, a couple of things. Are there any markers in the park? Uh, right now, there's a, a marker that just gives a, a history of, the, of 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 Seneca Village. But we would like, to, we hopefully, we would like to explore the possibility of encouraging uh, the Central Park Conservatory to do something that's more significant and that shows the depth of the existence of the community because Seneca Village existed not only for five, ten years, but it was existent for over 30 years. So that's something that's a, a long period for a community to exist in, in that area in, during that period. So that's something that would be more substantial and allow New Yorkers to explore their history also. Are there any descendants of the village involved in the project? As of now, we have no direct descendants, but then we are working with the with two churches who that existed in Seneca, in, in the area that was Seneca, that in in the area that was Seneca Village. Now I'm curious how so, it came to be called Seneca Village. Uh, that's usually associated with the indigenous people in New York State, the Seneca Indians. That's something we're exploring. As to the name, there are different possibilities. Uh, one of them is there was this the Seneca morals for how people who were enslaved might have been treated. So we're not sure if that might have come from that. Oh, so that, 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 that's something that we, we are expert because usually we tell somebody Seneca is the first thing of the indigenous population. But as to their relationship with the village, there's nothing that we know of. So that's why we're looking at that tangent. It, it, it has to do with the morals. And tell us a little bit about you. You have a very distinctive accent, which is not American. Tell us a little bit about you. Well, I consider myself a New Yorker right now, if I can. <laughs> I've been I've been here for 24 years right now, but I'm originally from 23, 24 years now okay. in New York. But I'm originally from Dominica. Okay. And I understand that you are working on a documentary on South Africa? Anything you no, can actually, tell me? Um, I'm the advisor for the Caribbean Club and the Haitian Club at City College, so... I encourage them to exp- to have events that they can explore the, the diaspora. So actually today 
we had um, the screen of um, a documentary uh, called Promised Land. It was produced and directed by Yoruba Ruchin, and she's an African-American um, filmmaker. So she actually was on campus today uh, screening the documentary, and the documentary looks at land issues in South Africa or foreign apartheid. So for the screening, there was a lively discussion with students and faculty and the director. Okay. And where did you say you were from again, sir? Dominica. Dominica? Yes. It, um, the Commonwealth of Dominica is actually an island between Guadeloupe and Martinique. Okay. Where is that? It's, 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 it's not the Dominican Republic. It's a smaller island. Um, it's only about 300 square miles, uh, population about 70,000. Okay. I heard you say small islands. Uh, what it's, part of the world? It's in the Caribbean. It's, it's between the island of Guadeloupe and Martinique. It's in the oh, Eastern Caribbean. Okay. I heard that. Martinique. Okay. So we're just north of, of, of Martinique. Okay. And you've been in the country about 23, 24 years. Yes. But I go back, uh, I go back once or twice a year. Okay. Any other um, any other projects that you're involved in other than Seneca and the documentary on South Africa? But right now, my focus is on uh, the Seneca village because there's a in terms of the use of historical archaeology because historical documents that uh, focus on elite groups or it tends to be biased by the ones that have, his, that have produced this material. The material culture of communities gives something that gives a voice to those who are undocumented or have been documented in an optic that's been biased by the producers of a document. So by using historical archaeology, you can get something that's more complex in terms of the lives of these people. Okay. How did you uh, uh, tell us again how that was discovered? How Seneca was discovered? Well, it was not discovered. It it, um, it was lost in the popular memory of New Yorkers, and through the publication of a book, of a book uh, entitled uh, "The History of Central Park: The Park and the People," there's a chapter in that book dedicated to Seneca Village and a couple other communities in that area, but the focus on, on that chapter was on Seneca Village. Okay, so that was the and history that, of the park. And then from that, there was uh, an exhibit at the Historical Society, which was curated by Cynthia Copeland and Grady Turner, that, focused, that, that looked at Seneca Village. Is that book still available? Yes. Um, let me have some singets. Imagine one could find a copy at the Schomburg there in uh, New York City. Yes. Okay. And who will, um, who's the author, do you recall? Yes, it was written by Roy Rosenweig and Elizabeth Blackmore. 
Elizabeth. It was, pub- it, it, it was published in 1992. 1992? Yes. Okay. And then the, the exhibit at the Soul Society was in 94. Okay. 1994? Yeah, there's the exhibit at the Soul Society. And that exhibit was curated by Cynthia Copeland and Grady Turner. Are you uh, familiar with the black abolitionist movement here in the United States and elsewhere? Yes. Uh, Are you there? Yes. Oh, okay. Yeah, you're kind of fading in and out there on me. Uh, Okay. The... um, Just just back to the the Pakana people. The offer was Roy Rosenwig, and last name is spelled R-O-S-E-N-Z-W-E-I-G, and Elizabeth Blackmore, B-L-A-C-K-M-A-R. Okay. And the, uh, the exhibit at the Soul Society was actually in 97 to 98, and it was entitled Before Central Park. The Life and Death of Seneca Village. Uh, that was before Central Park, The Life and Death before oh, Seneca Village. The Life and Death of Seneca Village. And that was created by Cynthia Copeland and Grady Turner. Okay. Grady Turner, and what was that mm-hmm. other name? Cynthia Copeland. Okay. Getting uh, back to the abolitionist movement, can you tell us anything about that movement in New York? The abolitionist movement in relation to Seneca Village. Yes, because we we know that there were the initial purchasers of Seneca Village were people who were inclined to be politically active. That's one dimension we we like to explore further. And how many people do you have working on this project altogether? Well, that it has gone through different phases. So, different okay. It first started, um, when it first started, we, we had a field two, a couple of field schools in 2000, 2001, and we, we worked with nine undergraduates in each period. Then we had a period where we did some coring in. Was it uh, in 2004? And then in 2011, we, when we did the archaeological project, we had nine undergraduates and two grad students guiding um, with, with, um, with the work. And then when we did the exhibit at City College, we worked with nine undergraduates again. Okay. Thank you so much, Professor, for... Uh that bit of information on Seneca Village. Um, it's been my pleasure to, to be able to share this uh, information with your audience. Yes, and uh, will you um, stay online and be with us after we listen to um, Chapter yeah. 10 of The Black Abolitionist? Yes. By uh, Benjamin Quarles and maybe... Uh, 
we'll discuss that. Excuse me, we have a caller. Are you on the air, caller? You can go ahead, caller. Okay, well, maybe they'll call us back as we uh, prepare to listen to uh, Chapter 10. The Black Abolitionist by Benjamin Quarles. Are you familiar with the author Benjamin Quarles, Professor? No, no. Okay. And speaking of Black, uh, the Underground Railroad, and uh, uh, what was slavery like in Martinique in that area, this stretch of islands? Uh, it varied from, uh, from island to island. If I'm from Dominica, there were not extensive plantations as uh, most of the other islands. Uh, but there was a lot of resistance to the a lot of resistance movement because the island is very rugged and mountainous. It lent itself to communities being formed outside of the established plantation areas. So there were a lot of maroon communities in the mountains. Okay. Well, I think we have the uh, the book queued up now, so we'll take our audience into Black Abolitionists by Benjamin Quarles. Black Abolitionists by Benjamin Quarles continued. Cassette 5, Side 2. Good evening and blessings, and welcome to another installment of The Gist of Freedom is Faith. This show is produced by acclaimed historian, educator, and author Leslie Gist and serves as our weekly live online discussion to celebrate the African American experience by honoring all the people, past and present, black and white, who, with faith and focus, are preserving our rich history through literature, the arts, the skilled trades, and the humanities. We thank you for joining us tonight, and we'd love you to be a part of tonight's discussion by calling in with your comments or questions to 347-324-5552. With the emergence of the Liberty Party in the 1840s, it was inevitable that the equal suffrage issue would come before the Constitutional Convention of 1846. This body referred to the question to the electorate, with results that were hardly surprising. In November 1846, the property qualification for Negroes was retained by a vote of 224,000 to 85,000. It is to be noted that in addition to the race and color factor, the Negroes' political inclinations entered into this lopsided tally. Negroes were Whiggish or Liberty Party-ish, and hence could hardly expect Democrats to vote for a measure that would add to the political strength of their opponents. The pattern in New York did not change for the remainder of the pre-war period, with Negroes pressing without success for equal suffrage. At a state convention held in Troy in September 1855, the delegates condemned political discrimination and proceeded to organize the New York State Suffrage Association. 
Stephen Myers was appointed lobbyist at Albany. In this capacity, he attended the sessions of the legislature, buttonholing most of its members. In February 1856, Myers reported that two-thirds of the lawmakers were favorable to extending the franchise. But either this figure was inflated, or a number of men changed their minds. Four years later, during another presidential year, the issue was still high on the agenda of the New York Negroes. The State Suffrage Association was now joined by a number of local groups, including the New York County Suffrage Committee, the Brooklyn Elective Franchise Club, the Albany County Suffrage Club, and the Elective Franchise Club of Ithaca. By September 1860, there were 48 local suffrage clubs in New York City and 18 in Brooklyn. But again, the voters turned down the equal suffrage proposal. The negative vote was smaller in percentage than in 1846, but there was no ambiguity as to the result. 337,900 to 197,000. Sorrowfully, the members of the State Suffrage Committee might have read again one of the lines appearing in a pre-election circular they had issued. Our white countrymen do not know us. They are strangers to our characters, ignorant of our capacity, oblivious to our history and progress, and are misinformed as to the principles and ideas that control and guide us as a people. The Negro in Pennsylvania had to undergo a political shock even greater than that of his fellows in New York. Down to 1838, many Negroes had voted in Pennsylvania, but this privilege was abrogated in that year when a constitutional convention added the word white to the suffrage requirement. During the extended debate, the convention had received a number of petitions on the issue, two from groups of Negroes in Philadelphia and Luzerne, calling for impartial suffrage. While the new constitution was before the voters, the Negroes drew up a lengthy protest, an appeal of 40,000 citizens threatened with disenfranchisement to the people of Pennsylvania. Largely the work of Robert Purvis, it told of the role of the Negro in the history of the state and described his progress and his present condition. It bore an abolitionist flavor. We freely acknowledge our brotherhood to the slave and our interest in his welfare. Is this a crime for which we should be ignominiously punished? The very fact that we are deeply interested in our kindred in bonds shows that we are the right sort of stuff to make good citizens. Were we not so, we should better deserve a lodging in your penitentiaries than a franchise at your polls. Despite its erudition and its eloquence, the appeal did not change many minds. The anti-abolitionist outbreak at Pennsylvania Hall in May 1838, although not the work of the reformers, brought about an increase in sentiment against Negro voting. Hence, in October, the new constitution disenfranchising the colored man won decisive approval at the polls. The Negroes were dismayed, their mood deepened by the story of a white boy who seized the marbles of a colored boy, telling him, You have no rights now. During the 1840s, Pennsylvania Negroes kept the suffrage issue alive through county and state conventions. 
One of the latter, meeting at Harrisburg in December 1848, asked the white voters to petition the legislature, adding somewhat plaintively that our petitions can only reach the humanity of the legislator, while yours will instruct him in a course of action. At the annual meetings of the Pennsylvania Anti-Slavery Society, Negro participants such as Purvis, Remond, J.J.G. Bias, and Thomas Van Rensselaer invariably got in a word condemning the disfranchisement of the blacks. The Negro protest was also expressed in petitions and memorials sent to the state legislature, the number totaling 81 from 1839 to 1851. The unresponsiveness of the state legislature led Philadelphia Negroes to take the unusual step in 1855 of sending a petition on a state issue to Congress. This memorial of 30,000 disenfranchised citizens of Philadelphia to the Honorable Senate and House of Representatives was a recital of the Negro's record of patriotism and good citizenship, his ownership of property, and his payment of taxes. But this appeal to the national legislature brought results as barren as those sent previously to the state capitol at Harrisburg. Nearly 20 years of such legislative indifference had a dispiriting effect on some Negroes. At Philadelphia, during the winter of 1856-57, two public meetings on equal suffrage drew small audiences of some 40 each. In New Jersey and Connecticut, Negroes held state conventions to obtain the suffrage. Such meetings followed a familiar pattern. The drafting of a document which listed the grievances of the Negroes, affirmed their right to vote through residence, military service, or tax paying, and appealed to the white electorate's sense of fair play. The result was negative in both states, although in New Jersey the Judiciary Committee of the lower house brought out a favorable report. In the Midwest, the Negro protest against political discrimination was voiced in Illinois, Iowa, Michigan, and Wisconsin. In Illinois, the call to a state convention of colored citizens to be held at Alton in November 1856 stated the key issue in the opening sentence. First, we complain of being taxed without the right to vote. In Ohio, with its large black population, the outcries were louder and more sustained than elsewhere in the region. Ohio Negroes held seven state conventions in the decade before the Civil War, six of them at Columbus and one at Cincinnati. One of the Columbus meetings was held in the Legislative Hall, the Assembly having graciously granted the request by the Negroes. The most prominent of the participants in the Ohio Convention was J. Mercer Langston, offspring of a wealthy Virginia planter, graduate of Oberlin, and a practicing lawyer, having passed the state bar in 1850. Langston was a member of a small committee selected at the Convention of 1851 to visit Governor Reuben Wood seeking his support in removing the Negro's political disability. The State Convention of 1854 selected Langston to draw up an equal suffrage petition to the legislature. Langston's memorial was read at the State Senate meeting on April 14th, those who listened not finding it unworthy of their attention. In 1856, the State Central Committee of Colored People of Ohio appointed Langston as lecturer and agent to canvass the state in the interest of Negro suffrage, not only speaking, but taking up collections and soliciting donations in the committee's name. But the idea of the black man as a voter was slow in winning converts. In 1849, Negroes had finally won the right to testify against whites in legal proceedings. 
But if Ohioans were ready for a measure of equality in the courts, this was not the case at the polls. To Negroes west of the Mississippi, this issue of testifying against whites took priority even over the privilege of voting. In California, the law depriving the Negro of his oath in court was the major topic to come before the statewide Negro conventions held in 1855, 1856, and 1857. At the first gathering held in Sacramento, the 47 delegates from 10 counties drafted an address to the people of the state clearly setting forth the problem. You have enacted a law excluding our testimony in the courts of justice in this state in cases of proceedings wherein white persons are parties, thus openly encouraging and countenancing the vicious and dishonest to take advantage of us. The California petitioners were heartened by a message from Philadelphia Negroes who commended their brethren on the Pacific coast for their noble struggle for the rights of man. White Californians did not view the petition in quite this cosmic light. Like the people in the other non-slave states, Californians feared that the removal of restrictions on Negroes might lead to an increase in their numbers. In California, however, the already racially mixed population made it more difficult to discriminate against the Negro. Hence, in 1861, the law barring Negro testimony was repealed. But California was not ready to revise its policy of white manhood suffrage, its Negro voting restrictions remaining on the statute books until the 15th Amendment in 1870. And except for Wisconsin, this would be the case in all the other states where such restrictions existed. The denial of the right to vote was discouraging to black abolitionists. Most of them, however, took an optimistic, long-range point of view. Jacob C. White, speaking at the closing exercises of the Philadelphia Colored High School in May 1855, at which the governor of the state was the honored guest, stressed the point that although Negroes were not recognized in the political arrangements of the Commonwealth, they were preparing themselves for a future day when citizenship in America would be based on manhood and not on color. In the viewpoint of the Negro abolitionists, the whole struggle for human freedom embraced the rights of women. The legal and political discriminations against the colored man were shared by all women. Public opinion was in essence male opinion, and it had its fixed ideas about the role of women beyond the traditional categories of kitchen, church, and school. A joint convention of men and women abolitionists held in Berlin, Ohio, in September 1849, moved Jane G. Swisshelm to mock horror. This is a precious state of affairs. Where are Mr. Masculine Prerogative, Mrs. Propriety, and Miss Feminine Delicacy? Negro reformers needed no one to tell them of the role of women in the anti-slavery crusade, particularly in fundraising. Hence, when the women's rights movement got underway in the 1840s, it attracted support from the more perceptive Negroes. In New York, few black leaders subscribed to Garrison's political views, but they shared his belief that women should be seen and heard in public life. At the first convention for equal rights for women, held in July 1848 at Seneca Falls, New York, Frederick Douglass gave a major address. He was the only man present who supported the suffrage resolution, seconding the motion of Elizabeth Cady Stanton that it was the duty of women of the United States to obtain the sacred right of the elective franchise. The statewide women's rights convention scheduled for Rochester in November 1853 
listed Douglas and J. McCune Smith among the signers of the call. At the meeting, Douglas was one of the featured speakers. Jermaine W. Loguen was named a vice president, and the youthful, light-skinned William J. Watkins was appointed as one of the secretaries. Negro conventions held after 1848 generally seated women, although sometimes the delegates needed prodding. Women themselves were not loath to force the issue. At the Ohio State Convention in 1849, the women, led by Jane P. Merritt, threatened to boycott the meetings unless they were given a voice in the proceedings, preferring not to remain as mute spectators. At the 1855 convention at Philadelphia, Mary A. Shad was admitted after a spirited discussion, in which she took part. Negro women abolitionists sensed the pivotal role of politics, particularly its relationship to slavery. In 1855, the Delaware Ladies' Anti-Slavery Society of Delaware, Ohio, pointed out that Negroes were subject to an atrocious and criminal system of political tutelage deleterious to the interest of the entire colored race and antagonistical to the political axioms of this republic. And Negro women, like their white counterparts, wanted to exercise political power directly, not through their presumed influence on their husbands, brothers, and fathers. Hence, the Negro women abolitionists believed in equal suffrage not only between the races but between the sexes. Sojourner Truth was as much at home at a woman's rights meeting as at any other kind, her natural eloquence making one overlook her broken English. She invariably made a deep impression, although her listeners found it difficult to convey her language to a third party. One might as well attempt to report the seven apocalyptic thunders, wrote J. Miller McKim. Frances Ellen Watkins was of comparable dedication in the battle for human rights, but a contrast figure in appearance and style. Slender and graceful, with a soft and musical voice, Frances, too, could take a deep hold on the human heart. In October 1857, the Pennsylvania Anti-Slavery Society hired her as lecturer and agent for eastern Pennsylvania and New Jersey, and received glowing reports of her lectures until the termination of her appointment in May 1858. A reporter at Mount Holly called her the best speaker he had ever heard. A listener at Norristown, Pennsylvania, was just a shade less enthusiastic, rating her as the most eloquent woman he had ever heard except Lucy Stone. Francis, like Sojourner, had a little book to sell, but hers was not ghost-written. Her Poems on Various Subjects, first published in 1854 and with a preface by William Lloyd Garrison, had a ballad simplicity and bore such titles as Slave Auction and The Fugitive's Wife. Francis was one of the signers of the Constitution of the Ohio State Anti-Slavery Society, an offshoot of the State Convention of Negroes held in Cincinnati in 1858. She pledged $10 to the new society and became a member of its committee to raise $500 for operating expenses. Charlotte Fortin, like Frances, was frail, introspective, deadly in earnest, and of a literary bent which in her case found its major expression in a diary. Charlotte joined the Salem Female Anti-Slavery Society when she was 17. She became a teacher at the Salem Normal School, of which she was a graduate, and corresponded with Garrison and Wendell Phillips. The latter, in a letter in January 1857, applauded her decision to stay in America and share the fight. 
She owed it to her grandfather, he added, referring to James Fortin. A lyceum and concert-goer, Charlotte attended a lecture, Fair Play for Women, given by George W. Curtis in Philadelphia in November 1858, going with her aunt, Harriet Purvis. The young Charlotte was delighted with Curtis, finding his lecture as much abolitionist as suffragist. One winter day in 1856, when the bitter weather prevented her getting out to a reformist lecture, she was disconsolate, explaining in her diary, I crave anti-slavery food continually. A worshiper of Charles Sumner, Charlotte walked on air one Saturday in February 1858 when she received two large envelopes from him, one of them bearing extracts from one of his speeches and the other containing eight autographs of prominent persons in England and America. Woman suffrage, white or black, was not achieved in antebellum America, and Negro manhood suffrage was limited. But Negro abolitionists maintained their interest in politics, realizing its importance in a country in which the voice of the people was deified. And in this popular chorus, the voice of the Negro was not completely stilled. In some states, the colored man could vote and join political parties, and in all states he could exercise the right of petition. The Negro's role as a voter and party worker was strongest in New England and New York, the Negroes in Massachusetts had been politically active since the emergence of the new abolitionists. A group of colored Bostonians attended a legislative hearing at the State House in March 1838, at which five white abolitionists, including Angelina Grimke, testified against slavery and on behalf of the free Negro. At a meeting held shortly thereafter, the Boston Negroes commended the State House sergeant-at-arms for treating them courteously and thanked their white friends who testified at the hearing. Four years later, another breakthrough took place when Charles Lennox Raymond appeared before a Massachusetts House of Representatives committee to protest against Jim Crow on the railroads and steamboats. In his remarks, Raymond referred to the elective franchise, saying that if the Negroes in Massachusetts had it, he saw no reason why it should be denied in other states. A year later, the Negroes of Boston petitioned the legislature to prohibit segregation in public transportation and repeal the law against intermarriage. At New Bedford, the Negroes had a meeting in October 1839, pledging themselves to vote for no official from Governor Down who was not in favor of immediate abolition. A committee of 83 was appointed to visit the candidates for public office, putting to them a series of questions, of which the first two are typical. Is liberty the will of the Creator? Does Congress have the power to abolish slavery in the District of Columbia, and should such power be immediately exercised? In Rhode Island, the Negroes managed to retain equal suffrage despite an effort in 1841 to push through a new constitution which eliminated the property requirement for voting, but also eliminated the Negro voter. Supported by resident Negroes like Alexander Crummel, a team of white abolitionists, along with Frederick Douglass, journeyed to the state late in 1841. The abolitionists and black supporters held a series of meetings, some of them broken up by mobs opposed to nigger voting. The Constitution adopted in 1843, however, had no race or color qualification for voting. Negroes increasingly voted throughout the state, but, topped by the nearly 400 other registrants in Providence, 
their numbers were not large enough to win concessions from the political parties. It was in New York State that political activity among Negroes reached its peak, many of them being able to meet the property requirement. These qualified colored men were not likely to spurn a privilege like the ballot, particularly with the Negro press spurring them on. Rights of all urged its readers to get out and vote, admonishing them to make their choices carefully. Set an example for the whites, who were already, too many of them, politically half-crazy. Another editor advised unpropertied Negroes to save the money they spent on perishable finery at the clothing store in order to accumulate enough to enable them to go to the polls. The number of Negroes eligible to vote is not easy to determine. In New York City, the figure reached 250 in 1838. Six years later, there was a 1,000 total for the state. In 1846, abolitionist Garrett Smith set aside 120,000 acres for colored men, drunkards excluded, one of his purposes being the increase in the number of black voters. The Smith grantees eventually totaled 1,985. By 1850, the list of qualified colored voters had risen to 1,200 for New York City and environs. And whatever the figures, they do not tell the whole story. Many Negroes followed the advice given by suffrage-seeking organizations. If denied the right to vote yourself, try to influence others to cast their ballots for the right candidates. Negroes eligible to vote needed no exhortation to exercise it. An organization calling itself the Colored Freeholders of the City and County of New York met periodically after 1838. At their first meeting, held in Philomathian Hall on October 29, 1838, they drafted two resolutions against slavery and one in support of Luther Bradish for lieutenant governor. Bradish had gone on record as favoring equal suffrage and passage of a law granting a jury trial to alleged fugitives. The public official that won the greatest admiration of the colored voter was Governor William H. Seward. A group of Negroes meeting in Union Hall in December 1842 sent him an address praising his anti-slavery stance, his refusal to render fugitives, his approval of the act establishing trial by jury in runaway slave cases, and the repeal of the nine-month residence law permitting slavery. In a gracious responding letter, Seward expressed his gratitude for the tribute. After 1840, the attention of the politically-minded New York Negro was drawn to the new political parties that took an anti-slavery posture. Interest in these new alignments was felt no less by Negroes throughout the North. Hence, while focusing attention on the relationship between Empire State Negroes and the new parties, it would be well on occasion to touch upon the wider scene. The first of these new political groups bore a magic name to Negroes, the Liberty Party. Founded in 1839, this body reflected the belief that the existing parties, Whigs and Democrats, could never strike a strong blow at slavery because their memberships counted hundreds of thousands of slave owners. Hence, only a new party could really push for measures repealing the fugitive slave laws, striking at slavery in the District of Columbia, prohibiting the domestic slave trade, and excluding slavery from the territories. By 1839, most abolitionists west of Massachusetts were ready for independent political action. In April of the following year, the new party selected James G. Burney and Thomas Earle, both active abolitionists, 
as its candidates for president and vice president. One of the earliest responses to the new party's nominees came from a group of Albany Negroes meeting at the Baptist Church late in April, with Benjamin Paul in the chair. After the standard denunciation of the property qualification for Negro voting in New York, the group called upon all colored voters to sustain Bernie and Earl in the coming election. The convention urged Negroes throughout the North to be politically active so as to hasten the consummation of our disenthrallment from partial and actual bondage. The new party won the enthusiastic support of the colored American, which generally furnished an accurate barometer of Negro thought. In the presidential election, Bernie polled barely 7,000 votes, but his followers were not to be discouraged. Six months after the election, the party's central nominating committee met in New York to select the standard bearers for the 1844 campaign. The committee members included Theodore S. Wright, John J.'s Will, and Charles B. Ray. Among Negroes, the most ardent of the early Liberty Party men was Henry Highland Garnett. At the convention of the Massachusetts branch of the party, which was held in Boston in February 1842, Garnett delivered one of the major addresses. A defense of the principles and goals of the new party, Garnet's speech was enthusiastically received, the Faneuil Hall audience constantly interrupting him with laughter, applause, and cries of, Hear! Hear! The delegates also listened to a plea for money from Lunsford Lane, raising $33 to help him purchase a member of his family. Garnet took his Liberty Party advocacy to the National Convention of Colored Men held at Buffalo in August 1843. His resolution endorsing the new party was supported by Theodore S. Wright, Charles B. Ray, and nearly 50 others. With only seven dissenting votes, the delegates gave their blessing to the Liberty Party, a circumstance that Garnet reported with pride at the national meeting of the party held two weeks later in the same city. At this Buffalo convention of the Liberty Party, three Negroes took a prominent part, Garnet delivered an address on a resolution he had proposed, affirming that the new party was the only one in the country that represented the true spirit of liberty. Samuel Ringgold Ward opened one of the sessions with prayer and also delivered a formal address, and Charles B. Ray served as one of the convention secretaries. Two of the party planks referred to the colored man, one extending a cordial welcome to him to join the party, and another condemning racial discrimination as a relic of slavery. Garnet and Henry Bibb took the field for the Liberty Party in the election of 1844, the latter speaking mainly in Michigan. The party polled some 62,000 votes, which was a considerable improvement over the results of the preceding presidential campaign. But Theodore S. Wright found reason for vexation because many Negroes still clung to the old parties, Support for the Liberty Party of both Negroes and whites declined after the peak year of 1844. By the time of the next presidential campaign, the party had split into two factions. But the greatest reason for its declining fortunes was the emergence in 1848 of a new party, the Free Soilers. This party, too, owed its existence to the slavery issue. Democrats and Whigs who opposed the extension of slavery in the territories met in Buffalo in the summer of 1848 and organized a new party with the proclaimed goals of free soil, free speech, free labor, and free men.
The question facing the Negro voter in 1848 was whether to support the badly enfeebled Liberty Party or the seemingly vigorous Free Soilers. The latter had chosen as its standard-bearer Martin Van Buren, a former president of whom Negroes had no fond memories. In his inaugural address, eleven years earlier, he had announced his opposition to the abolition of slavery in the District of Columbia and his intention not to interfere with slavery wherever it existed. Samuel R. Ward took a strong stand against the Van Buren-led Free Soil Party, but the great majority of Negroes took a half-a-loaf attitude, believing that it would be wiser to support the party that had a chance to win. In New York, the Free Soilers won more support from Negroes than any of the rival parties. They did much better in Massachusetts, where some communities voted the ticket almost unanimously. This was not the case, however, in Rhode Island. Here the Whigs issued a pamphlet reminding the Negro that it was they who had fought six years earlier to retain his right to vote. Such peculiar and local considerations operated against the Free Soilers in more than one state, thus contributing to its failure to carry a single one of them and to elect only five men to Congress. The elections of 1848, while hardly cheering to Negroes, had demonstrated that the old parties were splitting. This circumstance was viewed by the more optimistic as a proof of the progress of the abolitionist crusade. And, despite their outcome, the elections had whetted the Negro's interest in politics and his desire to be a participant in its processes. This interest tended to remain largely in the Free Soilers. This party numbered such friends of the colored people as Joshua Giddings, Sam and P. Chase of Ohio, and Charles Sumner, Henry Wilson, and Charles Francis Adams of Massachusetts. In Ohio, it was the Free Soil Party that championed Negro suffrage, and in Massachusetts, it was Free Soil men who had successfully battled to remove discrimination in the marriage laws, in transportation, and in the public schools. Negroes attended the National Convention of the Free Soil Party in August 1852 at Pittsburgh, held to select presidential candidates. The speaker drawing the loudest applause was Frederick Douglass, even though he emphasized that slavery should be exterminated rather than merely contained as the Free Soilers advocated. Their party platform did not go that far, and it was silent as to the discriminations against the Free Negro. But for national office, the convention selected two men highly regarded by the colored people, John P. Hale and George W. Julian. In the closing weeks of the campaign, free soil Negroes throughout New England held a series of rallies in Boston, all characterized, according to William C. Nell, by great enthusiasm. At these gatherings, such political figures as Hale, Sumner, Giddings, and Horace Mann were praised, and the two old parties were condemned. The speakers, including J.C. Beeman of Connecticut and William J. Watkins and Jermaine W. Loguen of New York, called upon the colored voter to sustain free soilery and thereby advance the anti-slavery cause. A handful of Negroes, and not many more whites, remained with the Liberty Party, headed by Garrett Smith, the reformer philanthropist. Smith, campaigning for Congress, won a seat, but on a local issue unrelated to slavery. Otherwise, the elections brought little cheer to Negroes and abolitionists, the free soil vote being smaller than that of 1848. Anti-slavery political parties, however, were far from having run their course, 
the greatest one of all coming into existence in 1854. In that year, the Kansas-Nebraska Act, opening the door to slavery in territory where it had been prohibited since 1820, created a deep resentment in the North. This Nebraska business is the great smasher in Syracuse as elsewhere, wrote J.W. Logulin to Frederick Douglass, adding that the atrocious villainy of the author of the bill, Stephen A. Douglass, was doing a fine work for the slave, but no thanks to him. A group of Philadelphia Negroes, headed by James McCrummel, held a meeting condemning the act on the grounds that slavery could not be legalized, and praising the congressmen who voted against it, Seward, Chase, Sumner, Giddings, Garrett Smith, and Benjamin F. Wade. Negroes were not the only ones bitterly opposing the measure. Its passage prompted conscience Whigs and anti-slavery Democrats to join with the Free Soilers to form a new party, the Republicans. Its ranks grew rapidly, spurred by the news of the bloody conflicts that accompanied the opening of Kansas. Negroes as a whole hailed this newer and stronger party committed to the containment of slavery. But there were a few dozen colored voters who, like the Liberty Party to which they belonged, refused fellowship with the Republicans. With a stubbornness almost unparalleled in politics, the Liberty Party would not take itself out of existence. Despite its microscopic vote in 1852, the party scheduled two conventions in New York in 1853, the second of them at Canastota in October with Germaine W. Loguen presiding. A year later at Syracuse, 30 Liberty Party diehards, among them Frederick Douglass, went through the ritual of nominating a candidate for governor and declaring that it was the right and duty of the federal government to do away with slavery. The coming of the Republicans did force the Liberty Party people to make one change, that of experimenting with a new name. The Radical Abolition Party was organized in June 1855 at Syracuse, with J. McCune Smith as the presiding officer at the three-day convention. The party platform was indicated in the title of a lengthy statement drafted by the delegates, an exposition of the constitutional duty of the federal government to abolish slavery. The radical abolitionists held two subsequent conventions, one in Boston in October 1855 and the other at Syracuse in May 1856. Four Negro leaders took part in these gatherings, Smith, Douglas, Amos Beeman, and J.W. Loguen. The mass of Negro voters, however, made no effort to join the Radical Abolition Party, despite its name. They felt that its chances of success were remote to the point of fantasy, a prediction that proved all too true. This attitude of why waste your vote even affected Frederick Douglass, who in mid-August 1856 announced that he was switching his support to the Republicans. Like the great majority of Americans, white or black, Douglas wanted his vote to count for something more than the affirmation of an abstract principle, however noble. Compromise was unavoidable if a political party hoped to attract enough voters to win at the polls. Negroes soothed their consciences by reasoning that the Republican Party had a chance to win, that its victory would prevent any extension of slavery into the territories, and that such a policy of containment would cause slavery to die out for lack of breathing space. The Republicans looked less drab to the Negro when contrasted with the only major alternative party, the Democrats. 
a group of Ohio Negroes meeting early in 1856, voiced its support of the Republicans because the opposing party was the black-hearted apostle of American slavery. Later in the year, Henry Highland Garnett took the same position in urging New York State's 6,000 black voters to come out for the Republicans. Of all the things he hated to see, said Garnett, the worst was a black Democrat, although he had to admit that there were some colored men who were so ignorant and misguided as to favor these avowed supporters of the enslavement of their race. Negro support of the new party became even more solid after its opponents dubbed its followers as black Republicans. Whatever one party might call another, the key issue in the election was slavery in the territories. The Republicans lost at the polls, but their candidate, John C. Fremont, did amass a popular vote of 1,340,000 as against James Buchanan's 1,838,000. Such a large vote for the candidate of a party only two years old certainly augured a promising future, an optimism shared by the Negroes. Essentially, their policy was a continuing attack on the Democrats. At a convention of Negroes in Troy in September 1858, the 55 delegates avowed that they were radical abolitionists at heart, but that their strong desire to defeat the Democrats would lead them to throw their support to the Republicans. The convention appointed William J. Watkins as a traveling solicitor to drum up Republican votes. A month later, Watkins went to Cincinnati to attend the state convention of colored men. Here, at Union Baptist Church, he added his voice to that of John Mercer Langston and others to the effect that the Democratic Party must be destroyed. Support for the Republicans, while strong, did not meet with the same unanimity, Peter H. Clark asserting that the rights of the Negro were no safer with the Republicans than with the Democrats. Negroes in the Northeast, like those in Ohio and New York, gave their support to the Republicans. A convention of New England Negroes meeting at Tremont Temple on August 1, 1859, with George T. Downing in the chair, gave its endorsement to the new party. The delegates voted, however, to press the Republicans to give their support to the black man's struggle for the right to vote. By so doing, they pointed out, the party would deserve the support of all who favored the cause of freedom. By election time in 1860, the Negro vote was almost solidly Republican. Their only possible rivals for black ballots, the radical abolitionists, were weaker, if possible, than in 1856. And, as in that year, the Republicans, although making no effort to win the colored vote, were attacked by the Democrats as being nigger worshippers. Negroes, if only to strike back, almost had to support the Republicans. Thus did the colored man ally himself with a party that was not as much a working man's party as the Democrats were. But he could scarcely join a party that vilified him. The victory of the Republicans in 1860 heartened the Negroes and the voting abolitionists. There was, however, a sense of frustration over the decisive defeat, previously noted, of the Equal Suffrage Amendment in New York. We were overshadowed and smothered by the presidential struggle, overlaid by Abraham Lincoln and Hannibal Hamlin, wrote Frederick Douglass. The black baby of Negro suffrage was thought too ugly to exhibit on so grand an occasion. Hence, while the elections of 1860 were more favorable for the anti-slavery crusaders than in any preceding quadrennial campaign, 
it was evident that racial discrimination and its sustaining base of slavery still exerted a formidable influence. In striking at slavery, the abolitionists made use of a political instrument far more time-honored than the suffrage, the right to petition for a redress of grievances. Those whose voting privileges were restricted, as in the case of the black American, were particularly petition-minded. A state convention of Illinois Negroes held in Alton in mid-November 1856 urged the colored people to avail themselves of the right to petition inasmuch as it was the only constitutional guarantee now inviolate from the ruffianism of American slavery. Two years later, an Ohio convention of Negroes pointed out that the right to assemble and petition for a redress of grievances was one of the few rights left to colored people in the United States. Black Americans hardly needed any reminder of the right to petition, a practice they had been making use of since colonial and revolutionary war times. And they needed even less advice as to what to petition for, having during the course of the 18th century sued either for their personal freedom, or, as in the case of Paul Cuff in Massachusetts in 1780, for the suffrage. The new century was hardly two days old, when a petition from a group of Negroes from Philadelphia was brought before the House of Representatives. The petition, which had been circulated among Negroes by James Fortin and churchmen Absalom Jones and Richard Allen, asked the House to adopt such measures as shall in due course emancipate the whole of their brethren from their present situation. For a beginning step that might be taken, the petition mentioned a revision of the laws governing the slave trade and fugitive slaves. After two days of debate, the members of the House overwhelmingly rejected the petition, alleging that it asked them to legislate on matters over which they had no control. One lone member voted for the measure, George Thatcher of Massachusetts, whose championship James Fortin never forgot. With the coming of the new abolitionists after 1830, the use of the petition reached flood proportions. This book is continued on Cassette 6, Side 1. Well, that was quite a bit of information put out there. Yes in reference to this particular reading. Um, taking quite a few notes here. Was anything that stood out for you, Professor? <laughs> the interest of the abolitionist movement in making efforts at enfranchising the community so that they could participate in the political process they need to acquire property so that they be, become voters. It mm -hmm. requires what happens in Tanaka Village. Yeah, there was quite a bit of activity uh, yeah. noted in New York City yeah. and uh, New England states around suffrage. I think he mentioned that in the state of New York there were 18 suffrage groups. Uh, yeah. It started around 1848 up to uh, 1860, and there were 18 such groups in Brooklyn. Yes. And too often uh, we negate the 
presence of uh, the African American presence in New York City, but as the African American, Seneca Village, Riggsville, Sandy Ground, Skunk Hollow, all these communities indicate the presence of, of African Americans in in the tri-city area. Yeah, <clears throat> excuse me, yes, uh, quite a bit. I was also impressed with the the fact that there was a fear, particularly in New York and again in New England, Pennsylvania and other areas, um, that the uh, whites feared blacks obtaining uh, voting rights. Yes. Because with voting came power. And I also noted that although they might have had voting rights in certain states, um, they didn't have any candidates uh, aside from abolitionists, white abolitionists, but no black yeah. abolitionists. Uh, running for office that I'm aware of. I want to remind our listeners that if they want to join in here, they can call in to 347-324-5552. Another thing that stood out for me is the, um, the dichotomy between blacks wanting liberty and whites wanting to main secu- uh, maintain security. And um, that's an age-old problem in any republic. Yes. Uh, it is with us today um, where the state wants to uh, maintain security and therefore what are subject to put down civil, uh, civil liberties. And I think we see that today. We saw it, or at least I did in this uh, reading in the various states um, in terms of uh, the voting rights that were sought, um, the the um, women's suffrage versus yes. for black folks all together, and what the women were up against in terms of, and particularly black women. Um, not having the right to vote and then being discriminated against as black women. Yes. And, uh, how they were somewhat put down uh, by the men. Uh, apparently, Frederick Douglass was one of the earliest supporters of uh, female suffrage and, being, and having black women or women in general involved in the movement and uh, support that. Now, in the Seneca Village, um, are we aware of any equality between the sexes? And uh, I think something uh, something that's un- unusual um, is actually there were a couple of the w- some women who actually owned property in Seneca Village, which was unusual for that period. So um, there were a couple of women who the, the property was listed. As the, the owners being are women, even though they sometimes might have been married, or they eventually go behind the office was to listed on their names. Mm-hmm. Okay. I'm looking over my notes here. Yeah. Um, 
noted the development of the political parties as well, um, particularly the Liberty Party that started out about 1839 and um, how it attracted uh, a number of uh, black folks to that particular party, those blacks who were free, obviously. Yes. However, I noticed that in 1846, um, the Constitution and some of those eastern states, uh, Pennsylvania, Ohio, et cetera, uh, the property rights were maintained. That is, one had to be a property owner in order to uh, be given the right of suffrage, the right to vote. And I noticed all of these constitutional conventions uh, were held in the various states. And when it came to property rights, um, or owning property, remained in those constitutions, and it led Garrett Smith to purchase a number of acres on the East Coast and parts went out to black males so that they might uh, have the right to uh, the right to suffer. Yes. And um, it's also went out west. You mentioned California also rejected um, because they were afraid of the increased numbers of blacks being able to vote. And, of course, we know their strength in numbers. Yeah. So this is I see in what I said with New York City, New York State, in a process of emancipating slaves, changing the voting laws for African-American males, increasing the, the requirements, at the same time, decreasing the, the requirements for white males, mm-hmm. all in fear of a large number of African-Americans would be enfranchised and would be able to participate in the political process. So how do you, you, you limit their activity? The requirements you increase the requirements, and in terms of access to employment and the sort of employment with which they could easily get unpaid, it was it, it was very limited to them. So having property value at 250 would be something significant for a period, but still, yeah. because of the need to be to, to participate. People found ways to to raise funds and acquire property so they could participate. Another remarkable thing for me in my notes here, uh, particularly in he talked about Boston, where free blacks were not only uh, fighting for abolition of their southern brothers who were being held in bondage, but they were also fighting for more freedoms. Uh, within those communities that they were free. Uh, For example, he mentioned um, uh, free blacks in Boston were fighting for transportation, to be able to use the transportation systems. Uh, Intermarriage was also a concern uh, amongst free blacks. So there was a two-front war here, if you will, uh, on two fronts. Two, yeah. Uh, more rights, extended rights for free blacks, and total rights 
abolition of slavery for their southern brothers uh, held in bondage. Again, I mentioned, uh, although they had the, ro- the right to vote, but apparently not the right to run for office. Uh, they had to rely on their abolitionist allies to um, get into elected office uh, to be able to impact legislation. Also, I had a question. I heard the name mentioned Charles Lennox Lamont. Do you know if Lennox Avenue in New York City was named for Mr. Lamont? No. Did you have any know anything about that? No. Okay. If any of our listeners might know something about that in terms of Lennox Avenue, they named in honor of Charles Lennox Lamont, who was very active in the abolitionist movement in New York City. Uh, what I could uh, gather from that uh, mm. that presentation. Uh, still looking over my notes here. Um, another key thing. Uh, just, uh, yeah. Go ahead. Let's just I mean, share some of this in terms of uh, um, uh, good reference for looking at the African American presence in New York City. It's a book by. Leslie Harris, uh, entitled In the Shadow of Slavery, African Americans in New York City uh, from 1626 to 1863. Okay. And this is published in 203. And incidentally, um, Les, Leslie is, is on the advisory board. Professor Harris is on the advisory board of um, the Institute okay, of Literature of the Village History. Um, the name is Leslie Harris. Professor Leslie Harris, and it's entitled In the Shadow of Slavery. African Americans in New York City, 1626 to 1863. 16... 26? 26 to 1863. 1863. In the Shadow of Slavery. Yes. By Leslie Harris. Yes. You know, there's several books um, probably dealing with slavery in New York City uh, or in the New York State as well. Yes. Um, let's see. Do you have any other uh, observations uh, relative to our listening to that particular piece? Is that is a the constant fight for equality and it's it, it's it's never ending. It's always the need to persevere and although you might uh, achieve freedom, but then there's level of equality that you have to fight for. Mm-hmm. Also, um, a significant part of that piece uh, involving women again, and he mentioned uh, uh, Mary Shad along with Sojourner, Sojourner Truth, yeah. their involvement, although there might have been some language barriers, and how yeah. the women were great fundraisers for the movement in terms of selling pamphlets and diaries and that sort of thing. Um, 
was their contribution. And in addition to making speeches and uh, lectures on the um, circuit, um, just before we close, uh, I think we should make note of the change, particularly around the Kansas-Nebraska Act. Um, whereas these political parties, which brought about the Republican Party, which the Free Soilers prior to that were more interested in the containment of slavery than they were the abolition of slavery. And the Kansas-Nebraska Act, uh, at least in my uh, thinking, was further evidence of the containment that is a Kansas-Nebraska Act. Uh, I mm -hmm. believe that for every slave act or every slave state amended, there had to be a free state. Yes. And that was seen as containment uh, as opposed to the furtherance of slavery. Because uh, Texas was lurking there that, that might wonder, I believe it was a territory at the time, New Mexico uh, was a territory. Uh, and some fear that even California might become a slave uh, due to that Kansas-Nebraska Act. But it did bring in the Republican Party, came into uh, came into being, and uh, the blacks supported that party uh, in a solid way uh, in the 1860 presidential election. Yes. Well, I think we're about out of time here for the program this evening. And um, I want to thank Professor Herbert Singeray. Just Herbert Singeray. Singeray, yeah. Yes. For joining us this evening and uh, participating in our discussion on the black abolitionists and also uh, for bringing us up to date and giving us some information on the Seneca Village there in New York City, which people know today as Central Park, and his involvement in that project. And just before we leave the air, Professor, would you give your contact information again? Yes. Um, relative to that. Uh, My Bill. email address is hsignore, that's H-S-E-I-G-N-O-R-E-T, at C-C-N-Y dot c u n y dot e d u. Okay, give us that one more time. H S E I G N O R E T at c c n y dot c u n y dot e d u. Okay, and I'd like to encourage you listeners if they have the opportunity to come to visit the exhibit uh, the City College of New York. It's in the Cohen Library, and the exhibit will be up until June 8th, and it's Seneca Village, an open forgotten uh, community. And we have 18 panels that look at the history of Seneca Village at New York, of New York City, and Panels that look at the way we have uh, explored the history of the village through documentary sources, through non-invasive archaeology, uh, for example, GPR, that's a ground-penetrating ground radar, 
on actual field actual excavation. Okay. And we we have we have also artifacts that, um, for some from um, some Etescots on display. So whoever visits will be able to see what the material culture left by the by some people by people who lived in the in Seneca village. Okay. Thank you again, Professor Herbert uh, Singer Ray, for joining us here on the Gist of Freedom. That's G I S T Freedom. Our producer is Leslie Gist, historian and author. And we come to you by way of www.blackhistoryblog.com. Uh, be sure to join us next Thursday, 8 p.m. Eastern Time, where we will continue our reading and discussion of black abolitionists by Benjamin Quarles. My name is Preston Washington. I've been your host. I'm a genealogist here in Kansas City, and I'm the president of the Midwest Afro-American Genealogical Interest Coalition. Thank you again for joining us. Good night, everyone. Good night, Professor. Thanks for giving me the opportunity, and good night. Good night.